Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mark G. Jeschke, MD, PhD, about his article, Morbidity and Survival Probability in Burn Patients in Modern Burn Care, which is published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Jeschke works as a professor in the Department of Surgery, Division of Plastic Surgery, and the Department of Immunology at the University of Toronto. He is also the director of the Ross Tilly Burn Center at the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Additionally, he is chair in burn research and senior scientist at the Sunnybrook Research Institute, all in Toronto, Ontario, which of course is in Canada. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Jeschke. Thank you very much for having me. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and especially what got you interested in burn care and burn research. My background is I am actually a, a general surgeon from Germany. And in the mid-90s, I joined Dr. Hernan's and Dr. Topkins at that time, the group in Galveston, Texas at the Shrine and UTMB, Galveston, Texas. And I did a fellowship with Dr. Hernan. Returned to Germany, finished my board, and then was, however, hooked somewhat to burn care. So I returned to the United States in 2004 and then uh, did a fellowship with Dr. Herndon and the group at the Shrine UTB and then uh, started working as a staff at those institutes and particularly then taking care of pediatric burns, severely pediatric burns as well as adult burns. And then I transitioned in 2010 to Canada to resume the directorship here with the Rossiter Burn Center. So since 2010, I'm up here in Canada. I see. And maybe you can tell the, the listeners, as a surgeon who was, who was involved in burn care during my residency yes. about 20, 20 years ago, I guess now, I imagine a lot has changed, and, and your paper decided to focus on outcomes in modern burn care. What would you say are great changes that have occurred over, like, say, the last 10 years uh, as advances in burn care? The, I think the, the greatest changes that made a significant impact is the implementation of protocolized care as well as ICU care. The critical care aspect of burns has, in my opinion, significantly advanced. The implementation of modern technological approaches as well as modern critical care therapies really did make a difference. The, the surgery per se for burns has been somewhat stable and plateaued with the early excision and grafting, and that was implemented in the 70s and 80s, and that is now uh, more or less the same. We're approaching new development in terms of new skin devices, skin replacements, but that is not a standard of care. So I really believe that what we implemented and learned from the critical care population, sepsis control, antibiotics, glucose control, lipid metabolic control, and so forth, modern ventilation aspects, I really think that this changed significantly over the last 10 years. It improved the outcome of burn, particularly pediatric and adult patients. It made a significant difference. So not a whole lot on the surgery side, but apropos to our, especially our audience, really the advances that have coincided in uh, critical care medicine. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's one of the major. And particularly also what is coming for burns is, in my opinion, very important now is the next step, which is led by the American Burn Association and the American College of Surgeons, is similar to TQIP, so the quality improvement aspect. So we burn care providers and burn centers now are looking in, in a prospective database and to look at their outcomes and compare in terms of how is their performance. And I think this will be a next step to really advance our f- outcomes even more. So that's something over the next five to 10 years that we have. And then being peer reviewed by a group that we can compare 
and see, identify strengths and weaknesses. And so in, I think that's a very important major step in the right direction, but again, particularly focusing on the critical care aspect. And I hope that the research aspect will develop some skin replacement devices at this taking donor sites and the grafting procedures that these will be obsolete at one point and we don't uh, need those somewhat antiquated approaches so that we move away from the gold standard to really design skin devices and so forth, scale 3D skin printing. And this will probably then change the way how we practice burns over the next 10 to 20 years. Oh, interesting. Very apropos advances that we're seeing in technology elsewhere as well. So the data that you had for this particular paper, mm -hmm. was this from this database that you're describing or is this so this study was a big uh, multi-center trial, GLU grant, or the host response to injury, inflammation in the host response to injury grant. It was led by a group from particularly Dr. Tompkins, and then there were Burns and Trauma Leader, which was Dr. Ron Mayer from Seattle and Dr. Herndon. And that group included Burns, and they had six hospitals that uh, were included as a multi-center aspect. And these were all considered burn centers with leading aspects in modern burn care. So these six burn centers, the original aspect of to set up this database and this trial over 10 years was to look at, was to look at genomic and proteomic responses. But what also this trial really was an advantage was the first time prospectively collect standard operating procedures and collect data on approaches that were in six big burn centers and then to look what are the outcomes and uh, what is going on in terms of burn care. And they agreed on a standard operating procedures for burns in terms of surgery, donor sites, nutrition, critical care aspect, and collected the data. And so that was very fascinating because these burn centers are considered on the forefront. And so one of the products that then came out is the question that and this was the study to say, we know we had somewhat a cutoff for burns, and this is the age plus burn size reaching 100. It's about a 50% chance of death. It's the BOW score. Again, if you add inhalation injury of 17, you reach 150 futility. So we felt that we wanted to reassess what in modern burn care, and all these, again, these burn centers were considered to be modern burn centers. Where are we right now in pediatric and adult patients? What is the burn size where you can expect as, a, as an admitting physician, even in a specialized center, to have a high probability of complications? And that was the design of the study then taking this prospective database and saying, again, can we determine a cutoff that differentiates between morbidity and mortality for pediatric patients and, and adult patients? I see. So I, uh, just to set this up a little bit further, so did each center have its own unique set of protocols and standards for the care of the burden center, or was that, was that across centers one protocol in mind? There were variations, which each center has, but there were over, overall standard operating procedures, which were published by the GLU grant, because it was very important, uh, again, when you, they, they tried, they collected tissues, skin, fat, muscle, and blood, to look at in, uh, inflammatory proteomic responses uh, and genomic responses. So it was very important to be somewhat very similar. However, there were of somewhat intra-hospital individual variances, but the main Therapeutic approaches were very similar. Early excision and grafting tried to cover with autograft the nutrition that was within a, a certain variation, the donor care and so forth. So it was how to diagnose inhalation injury, the definition of sepsis, definition of multi-organ failure. So we had these definitions in this database, and every patient that was enrolled was then prospectively entered in this database that was managed from a data management core 
and that was verified and the data were controlled and the data were examined whether it's correct and there was a lot of uh, learning uh, to actually for the first time to have patients enrolled in it. So there was somewhat a real agreement between the six burn centers, but there were some deviations or not even deviations, variability, uh, which is center-specific. But overall, these were these are considered to be big burn centers that practice modern burn care. Great. And again, the, the notion of this paper really is to kind of update the modern outcomes in terms of burn, burn care with kind of state-of-the-art care at top-notch burn centers. Yes, it was the last study it was done and to try to see where cutoffs are and where the burn sizes that we are in trouble were was over a decade ago. Two to, well, actually, in fact, I think 15, 20 years ago. So that's why an update to see have we increased our burn size? And if yes, what is the burn size now that even specialized centers need to be concerned about? Yeah, so that is very important to know that by no means this is for the regular care provider saying, how do I phrase it correctly? This is the 60% or the 40% will, will be found, so 60 for pediatric patients and 40 for adults. It is not for a regular center or a, a regular hospital saying, oh, we can keep all these patients because they don't run into trouble. These are burn patients in specialized state-of-the-art centers that we run in trouble. So we need to be clear on this, that this number is really associated with highly specialized burn centers, and this is their cutoff, not for a hospital looking at transfer criteria. The transfer criteria are set by the American Burn Association. So one has to be very careful of the interpretation. This is very much, again, state-of-the-art burn centers that run into more or less need to be very vigilant and alert with these burn sizes. Yes, absolutely. And so you know, I think that point is worth making again, that the, the idea is not necessarily that this is the, the outcomes that one can expect in your critical care unit, your trauma center, these are really highly specialized centers that yes. deal almost exclusively with burn patients. That's right. Absolutely correct. And then I think that's very important that the, the listener keeps this in mind is the transfer criteria set by the American Burn Association, that was not the goal of this paper. This goal of the paper was simply to look at in these highly specialized centers, what are the burn sizes that the burn care provider can expect, oh, this is a, a patient with this burn size this patient has likelihood of developing sepsis, pneumonia, death, or, and so forth. So that is to raise vigilance for burn surgeons and burn care providers and to have a, a TBSA associated with this. Right. And so as you went through your results, what surprised you? I was actually surprised that we are approaching 60% in pediatric patients, which is quite a significant cutoff for pediatrics. And that's number one, it, it surprised me that we are at the 60%. It also surprised me, based on our data, is when certain morbidities and the, to looking at the incidence that we see an increase from young patients to older patients in terms of pneumonia and sepsis, as well as mortality, which is clear. However, the burn wound infections, we have a very high incidence in pediatric patients. So when we look at the paper, we see that 94% of pediatric burn patients had a burn wound infection, whereas only 55 or 50, 48% of adults. But when we look at systemic infection, such as sepsis, it's actually only 2% versus 10% in adults and 26 in elderly. So that was a very surprising finding to me that somewhat pediatric patients can compartmentalize their burn wound infection that doesn't, it does not spread into the system. And that, I found that very surprising. Interesting. So the differences between adults and children or a pediatric population it seemed as though while they had greater incidence of, I just want to make sure I get this right, yeah. greater incidence of actually soft tissue infections or burn site infections, right. they had less episodes of systemic 
sepsis. Correct. You're absolutely right. So that's in table two. So uh, if I can, I can read this. So burn wound infection in pediatric patients, 94%. So 94% of the patients had a burn wound infection. 94%, and that's high. Yeah, <laughs> it is high. And 85% of pediatric patients had at least two burn wound infections. So 85, that's quite a significant number. But then the number decreases if we go to uh, adults with 55 or respectively 42 and then elderly, which we then furthermore exclude because we only had 23 patients for elderly. We did not put them in as a cutoff. But elderly, then it, it goes even lower. So but indicating to the decrease in incidence of burn wound infections, but then when you look at your systemic ones, like nosocomial, pneumonia, sepsis, uh, that's the opposite. Children have very low in percents. Uh, of infections, and then it, it increases with age. So it's the opposite. And I think that uh, indicates that, again, children have somewhat the capacity to limit the infection to the skin or their soft tissue, and it does not spread as much, and they don't develop as much sepsis. So they seem to have an immune aspect, inflammatory aspect, which we didn't determine here. But there seems to be a significant physiologic and immune response by these kids that just really restricts the systemic spread of infections. This is one of the findings I found extremely fascinating and important. Yeah, that's really quite interesting. And I, I'm wondering, since the study was set up to also evaluate genomics and proteomics, if there are um, other findings that might help further elucidate some of those differences? Or Yes, you're absolutely right. So one of the aspects that the Grant also learned, and it is a very important one, is how to deal with these big data or how to look at the genomic. And the trauma group and the burn group is ongoing in their analysis. They still, nowadays even, they're looking at some of the genomic responses. They look at the changes. And so there are there is a study looking at the incidence of infection. Is it genomically related that you can predict the incidence? And so that's ongoing. And I hope that the Glue Grant will be able to finish and submit these studies because I believe it's very important to look at is your genome predictive of infection or mortality? because that was originally what was hypothesized. So I'm, I'm hoping that this will be done and that gives us further insights. Yeah, that's great. If we can go back, I just want to uh, make sure the listeners and myself understand, when you speak of the 60% in children and the 40% in adults, what, what do those numbers mean? So that means, and then the when we go to table three, the uh, very statistical model that was used to imply to look at cutoff for pediatric and adult patients, so table three shows, for example, by implying various models, the Yauden or the distance from the RSC curve or this maximum specificity and sensitivity, when we go through the data, it looks for mortality. Kids are between 55 and, and 77 and 64 is the data. So around 60% see, is the cutoff for mortality. So that means the child, 0 to 16 years of age, and we didn't substratify 0 to 4. Yes, we just took every patient under 16. If a child, 0 to 16 years of age, has a 60% burn, there is an increased risk. That's basically a cutoff. Anything over 60 is at an increased risk for mortality to die from this injury. And the similar notion is observed when we look at multi-organ failure, look at ARDS, burn wound infection, sepsis, and pneumonia. So sepsis is a bit higher. It's in the 70s, but the rest of all the morbidities is in the 60s. So that seems to me that there is a process ongoing, either systemically, the immune system, inflammatory, metabolic aspects, many, many complex factors in this response that are affected by 60%. So something happens in children that are at an absolute increased risk for these complications as well as death. And just to be clear, so because maybe I'm 
misunderstanding. That, so if, if a child has a 60% burn, and that's total body surface area, mm-hmm. they're at 50% risk of dying? Or what exactly defines that, that cutoff? I, I see. No, no, we did not put a, we did not put a specific percent yeah. saying you have uh, this amount X of dying. The LD50 for pediatric patients, particularly with the Shriners Hospital for Children, the, the pediatric centers in Boston, Cincinnati, Sacramento, and in Galveston, their LD50 is probably 80 to 90% TBSA burn. So this is where you have a 50% chance to die. What we did here is basically to determine a risk associated with a burn size, not predicting, just simply saying at this burn size, we have an increased risk. It's a cutoff uh, using statistical models that you are at risk for death or these infections, at an increased risk. So that's where the risk of death starts to dramatically increase after 60%. That's right. And after 40% in adults. And in a modern era, the LD50 for an adult? The LD50 for an adult, we're approaching, the, I think I saw some data recently from the MBR, from the National Burn Repository and our data. I think we are in, a, in the 70, 80% as well. So the children are ongoing. They actually... They are, from, again, these pediatric centers are amazing, and some of the 90% even have a 50% chance of survival. So that, that number for pediatric patients is being pushed up as we speak. So I would say that the adults are in the range of about 60 to 80 as well. Elderly are still in the 20 to 30 to 35% TBSA burn. They have an LD50 there. And particularly elderly with increased age, they have a decreased burn size. So a 60, 65-year-old is about 30 to 40, whereas in the 70 years, 20 to 30% burn. So it's very low compared to children. But one of the weaknesses was that we did not have enough elderly in the study to actually conduct a cutoff analysis here, so we did not. Mm-hmm. But uh, what we see, as you said, adults are using these models are in, these, in the 40 range, particularly for mortality, and then in the 35 to 50 for various complications. So if that also makes sense that children have a higher one than the, the adult patients. But again, this is just not putting any percent of predicting anything outcome on it. It's just saying this is the cutoff value. If you are in a specialized burn center, so you admit a patient. So I was to help guide our burn centers to say, you have a 40% burn of an adult, you know you, this patient is ultimately going or has an increased risk because he's at the cutoff if he's 40 to 45 or 50, even with highly specialized care of developing sepsis, of developing moth, of developing pneumonia, or even dying. He's at, at this burn size that you have to be very vigilant. And again, what we translated this to is when you have a patient admitted with this burn size, that you should really try to implement maybe even individualized approaches, or there's little room for errors. So that means you need to go in early excise and graft the areas. You need to make sure you, you see an infection quite early. You cannot wait until you have sepsis. So just to be extremely vigilant in your care that these patients are at high risk for complications. And again, just to reiterate, because it makes even more sense now, just because a, a child has less than a 60% chance of, uh, I mean, a 60% burn or an adult has a less than 40% burn, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be transferred to a burn center. Not at all. <laughs> yes. No, 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 they so should be. Make, make sure that's, yeah. yes, absolutely should be, yes. That's absolutely clear, and I completely agree with you, please. Yes, yes. that is, the message is not not to transfer. The right. message is you need to transfer according to the ABA guidelines. You should transfer a patient. And then these burn numbers are in the hands of a burn expert and a state-of-the-art hospital. It's not to say, oh, yeah, we can treat a under 30%. And it also does not say that patients under 40% burn in adults and under 60 of kids, they all should survive. 
there are patients that will not survive even with a 20% burn, maybe even with a 10% burn. If you have a patient who is 60-65, has a 10% burn, however, has a diabetic heart attack and so forth, that patient may not survive. Or a child with a 40% and having a complication. So this is also not to be used as a ruler and judging everybody saying, oh, you lost a, a patient who is a child with a 20% burn, why did he die? This, this is not what it means. This is not what this paper is intended for. And one has to also say there can be poor outcomes, with, even with smaller burns. By no means meant that everybody has to survive who is under 60% in kids or under 40 in adults. That, that is not what we meant to do. And how does inhalation injury influence these numbers? Yeah, that is a discussion. That is very fascinating. So there are studies, and we conducted one, also with the blue-grant data, does inhalation injury affect outcome? And there seems to be an effect that inhalation injury increases some of the risk of mortality. However, we didn't account in this one, not to lose further power, we did not substratify inhalation injury. And uh, we had an incidence of inhalation injury, which is very much comparable to described. So we had 50% of our pediatric had an inhalation injury, 40% of adults, and then 35% of elderly. So we see here in our burns and here very similar numbers. We see about 40 to 45% of our patients have inhalation injuries. But uh, what you ask is completely valid. We did not substratify in this study. We didn't want to put inhalation injury in this equation. But in a separate publication that we, we submitted uh, looking at inhalation, we thought there was a, a signal that inhalation injury has an effect towards worsening the outcome. The problem is that usually inhalation injury patients are bigger burns as well. Right. So you have rarely a 60, 70, 80% with no inhalation injury. It's not that often, right? And so it's very hard, in my opinion, to separate inhalation in the component of this inhalation injury from a, a significant burn. I, I find it very difficult. Therefore, there is some controversy. And to my knowledge, there is no clear study as of now showing or saying inhalation injury clearly augments mortality or inhalation injury does not augment mortality. Again, I, I think we have a good signal that it does worsen outcomes, but our study was by no means a randomized controlled trial. I suppose, yeah, I was thinking as, as the degree of burn increases, it makes sense that more and more patients will have inhalation injuries. Yes. Are all the patients in this particular data fire-related burns? Are there chemical burns as well? Or I think I need to go, I'm going to look into table one. I think the majority was flame. And then we had some flash and score burns. I think we had very minor, I don't think chemical injuries were in here. And uh, we had some electrical arch, which is kind of a flash burn. And so this is usually what the majority was. And one of the important aspects, which I did not mention, I'm sorry, is these patients were also enrolled. The, the injury was deemed survivable. That means none of the patients was futile on admission. So one has to be very careful was also, again, looking into this. So you, because you have an admission, you have an, uh, a certain percent burn size and inhalation injury, and you say it's futile, but they say you survive. This is not what we have. All of our patients we enrolled into the Blue Grant were considered to survive the injury upon admission. If the patient was considered futile and do not resuscitate, that was an exclusion criteria for the Blue Grant. And in terms of burn size, inhalation injury, and age, were the futility requirements set a priority? Or no, they were, they were based not. On, they were based on clinical impression? Yes. Yeah, I see.
I mean, what we do here, I can speak for our burn center in Toronto, is usually we add the age plus burn size plus inhalation as majority. When we see somewhat the futility index around 140, 150, but even that number is not written in stone, particularly if a patient has donor sites or there's some good areas for skin transplant or depending on the burn location. So I would not even describe or say that there's a certain percent that we just have a written rule saying, oh, we don't resuscitate. Usually we have this to the discretion of the attending who admits the patient and then, of course, the uh, medical condition and how the status of the patient is before the injury, what the patient wishes are, and so forth. So there's a lot of factors playing in. The glue grant per se enrolled only patient that the attending who admitted the patient said this patient will survive. So, so how do you see this data being utilized in the future and what future work are you looking forward to? I think that we pushed this number now to a higher level, over 16-40%. I think the Again, the, what we can use now is identify, as you described, the genomic or proteomic responses and see what happens at these cutoffs. Why do you have the, these patients have an increased risk of, obviously, a poorer outcome? Why is it around the 60 or the 40% respectively? Assessing it on a critical aspect to conduct the genomic analysis, to conduct some inflammatory and proteomic analysis, to keep this burn size in mind when you start conducting your B-clip and peer compare yourself to the other burn centers. And lastly, is the, the main intent was also to show burn care providers that we increased the burn size, but there's still a, it's, it's by no means are we there yet, and you need to really be very much on your toes when you take care of a burn patient that is in that burn range, that you need to really be very careful about the sepsis and so forth. As I said, there's little room for error. You cannot not go to the OR. You, you cannot start nutrition. You need to make the, meet the metabolic demands you need to really try to be on your toes to get this patient through in order to survive. Yeah. You know, I don't think we explicitly stated what the previous burn sizes were where mortality dramatically increases or the cutoffs. They were in the in the 20 to 40 range. They were described there. So particularly for kids, it was about 40, and adults were in the 20. So we were basically upped it by approximately 20%. That's pretty dramatic. Yeah. 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 That's very impressive. But I really think that the protocolized critical care contributed significantly. I think that you have protocolized care overall that also the burn care providers get together and define sepsis or define pneumonia. I think that allowing comparison amongst different centers, thinking about what the critical care literature has been doing for quite some time, I think we learn from them. And that's a good notion to follow the critical care providers in in, in terms of their protocolizing care, the sepsis bundle, whatever. Whatever is being implemented, I think that we learn from them is very beneficial for us. Well, certainly kudos to you for this publication, but even more so kudos to all the practitioners that work in these high-quality burn centers and really have advanced burn care quite uh, significantly. Thank you. Do you have other points that you'd like to get across? No, I think we covered it. I think we got this across, and I, I think it's good. Yeah, no, wonderful question. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I certainly look forward. It'll be interesting to hear the, uh, see some more results from the genomics uh, point of view, and yeah, exactly how that how that plays a role with individualizing the approach to the burn patient. Yeah, luckily Dr. Hernan and Dr. Tompkins are still on it and are further developing us, and I, I hope that uh, we will make some significant findings and hopefully translate this into future care. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein.
Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th through 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCM, is an associate professor of surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine, Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.